The changes in the church organizational structure presented by President Tanner today and sustained by you are additional evidence of the divine inspiration of the Lord in directing the affairs of His Church. It is inspiring to watch and, when appropriate, participate with the First Presidency as they prepare for the rapid expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every corner of the earth. It will be successful. It must be accomplished by us. He has declared, I am Jesus Christ. I came by the will of the Father, and I do His will. Learn of me and listen to my words. He has committed to mankind the promise that all who believe and are baptized in His holy name and endure in faith to the end will be saved. As of today, the Church is even more effectively prepared to reach and encourage all men to hearken unto His voice, for His everlasting covenant is established and is a standard for His people. They are to be messengers and to prepare the way before Him. Inhabitants of the earth are to receive the gospel that the kingdom of God might go forth. The Lord has said, Thou, meaning us, shall declare glad tidings, publish it upon the mountains, upon every high place, among every people, that thou shalt be permitted to see. And continuing, he said, Thou shalt declare repentance and remission of sins by baptism. Baptism is the gate through which all must enter to accomplish the Lord's desire to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. The family home evening manual, now being used throughout the world, has a most inspiring first lesson. The theme is, Families are Forever. Families are instructed to place a number of items on a table, among which are a, a mar marriage certificate, a temple recommend, a picture of a temple, and a baptismal certificate. Family members are then asked to explain their relationship. Church members know that all of these items placed on the table have a relationship to temple marriage and the possibility of a family forever. This afternoon, I would like to highlight one of those items on the table, the baptismal certificate. A forever family requires that a couple possess baptismal certificates, be worthy members of the Church to qualify for temple recommends, and a marriage certificate signifying a celestial marriage. Now, what about the millions of our Heavenly Father's children who, if they were baptized, could receive blessings which would lead to becoming an eternal family? Our full-time missionaries are having increasing success in all parts of the world in bringing souls into the waters of baptism. But their success could be multiplied many times if they had the enthusiastic cooperation of the members of the Church. 
It would seem most members of the church have a built-in reluctance to share the gospel with their friends and neighbors. Many of us take pride in referring to the growth of the church or the success of the worldwide missionary effort, but have never fellowshiped an acquaintance or a neighbor. When returning mission presidents are asked, how could you have had more conversions in your mission? We hear the same reply. If only we could get the members to assist the missionaries by preparing their friends and neighbors to receive the elders. Have we forgotten our obligation? Have we forgotten what the Lord said? Behold, I send you out to testify and warn the people, and it becometh every man who hath been warned to warn his neighbor. Therefore they are left without excuse. The Lord continues, I give unto you a commandment, that every man, both elder, priest, teacher, and also member, go to with his might to prepare and accomplish the things which I have commanded, and let your preaching be the voice of warning every man to his neighbor. Your missionary sons and daughters are trained to teach the gospel, to teach in an orderly, inspired manner, which hopefully leads to baptism. To every missionary, every hour is precious and must be productive. Do you realize that missionaries baptize about one person for every 1,000 homes they tract? That these same missionaries will baptize 600 people for every 1,000 who are taught in the homes of members? 600 times more converts when members participate with conviction. More of these exciting young servants of the Lord are in your wards and branches than ever before. Missionaries are going out better trained, better prepared, with higher hopes and aspirations. Every family who has accepted the gospel is obligated to share it with his neighbor. We can interest people in the gospel by just being natural and sincerely showing our love for them. Emily Dickinson wrote, We never know how high we are till we are asked to rise. And then, if we are true to form, our statures touch the skies. You who are reluctant to prepare the way for a teaching opportunity for the missionaries in your neighborhood are denying yourselves rich blessings and are not obeying President Kimball's counsel. And he said, I know this message every member of missionary is not new. We have talked about it before, but I believe the time has come when we must shoulder arms. I think we must change our sights and raise our goals. The prophet Nephi said, For the day should come that they must be judged of their works, yea, even the works which were done by the temporal body in their days. On an airplane flight a few weeks ago, a friend of mine engaged a lady in conversation. He told her about his trip to Anderson, South Carolina, to visit a fourth cousin because he was seeking information concerning some of his ancestors. He asked this lady sitting next to him, 
Would you like to know why I'm interested in my ancestors who died long ago? Yes, I would, she replied. He said, I was trying to find information about my forebears so I could perform certain work for them, uh, for them, do certain work for them in the temple. And then he went on, do you know where the Savior was during the three days his body lay in the tomb following the crucifixion? This lady said, no, where? And he continued, Peter the Apostle said, Christ preached to the spirits in prison who were disobedient in the days of Noah. And then he said, now do you think the Savior of the world would spend three days preaching to these people if they could not do anything about it? No, I don't. I'd never thought of that, of that she said. He proceeded to explain baptism for the dead and the, and the resurrection. He quoted Paul, What else shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And then he said to her, Do you remember the phrase, Until death do you part, being used when you were married? Your marriage contract ends when either of you die. She replied, I guess that's right, but I had never thought of it that way. And then he continued, My wife died the fore part of last month, but she is my wife eternally. We were married by one having the priesthood authority to bind in heaven that marriage performed here on earth. We belong to each other eternally. And furthermore, our children belong to us forever. Just before landing, he said to her, Do you know why we met? It is so you too can learn about the gospel and be sealed to your husband, your children, your progenitors for eternity, to become an eternal family. And soon after this incident, he mailed a copy of Elder Legrand Richard's wonderful book, A Marvelous Work and a Wonder, to this lady and her family, and he tucked his name card inside the book. The name of this woman and her family eventually found its way to some full-time lady missionaries laboring in her city in Pennsylvania. After the missionaries' first contact with her, they wrote, Mrs. Davis was extremely gracious. You should have seen the light in her eyes when she met us. Brother Cummings had planted a most fertile seed with his testimony and confidence that he and his loved ones would be together after this life. As, the, as missionaries, we felt at peace. We were impressed that the Lord would attend our efforts because this family was prepared. Now to you, I would say, do you remember the essentials of a forever family? Baptismal certificates, temple recommends, marriage certificate. But first, your friends and neighbors must have a baptismal certificate. The story told by Brother Cummings to the lady on the plane planted a desire for that baptismal certificate. For this is a day of warning and not a day of many words. For I, the Lord, am not to be mocked in the last days. And thou shalt declare glad tidings, yea, publish it upon the mountains, and thou shalt do it with all humility, trusting in me. Last January, in an effort to stimulate missionary activity, our Ohio Stakes presented a program on the Word of Wisdom entitled, What Makes Mormons Run? 
Church members encouraged their friends to bring, uh, the, 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 the leaders encouraged the, the members to bring many of their friends and neighbors to this meeting. A stake high councilman was sure his neighbors would refuse. And though he felt obligated to, fight, to invite his next door neighbor, he kept putting it off knowing they would not accept. Finally, and somewhat embarrassed, he decided not to postpone the challenge any longer. And after praying that his approach and words would not be misunderstood by his neighbor, and holding the hand of his eight-year-old daughter, he went next door. They knocked on the door, were warmly greeted and invited in. An invitation was extended to this neighbor family to come and hear a world leader and a prophet of God. The family agreed to attend. Now it was much easier to ask other neighbors, friends, associates, his daughter's piano teacher, and many others. His newly found courage led to more success and a comfortable feeling. Over 40 people responded to his invitation. They had to charter a bus to transport their guests to the meeting. And now what about that first neighbor he invited? They are now members of the Church, a potential forever family. Before this family was baptized, this High Councilman wrote, I tremble to think that because of my reluctance to share the gospel with my neighbors, this choice family would have lost the blessings of the gospel. Oh, that every church member could feel this wonderful experience. And why did his neighbor decide to investigate the church? The neighbor said, If any other neighbor had have come to my door to invite me to investigate religion, I would have declined. But we have been so impressed with your family, your cleanliness, and your actions. You are always friendly and smiling. Your yard looks so neat and clean, and you are working in your yard before anyone else is out of bed in the mornings. We wanted to learn more about you and your church. The Lord declared, For all men must repent and be baptized. And by your hands I will work among the children of men unto the convincing of many of their sins, that they may come unto repentance and may come unto the kingdom of my Father. If you will involve your whole family, pray as a family for success. Select a family to fellowship. Set goals and dates for accomplishment. Commit yourselves to do whatever is appropriate. Then fast and pray, and then pray and fast. I promise you that your warning voice will be heard, that this is the day when the harvest is ripe, the press is full. The Lord will bless your efforts. You will witness friends enter the waters of baptism. The lives you touch may forget what you said, but they will never forget how you made them feel. Families are forever. I testify to you in all humility, 
In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. I, too, feel highly honored to be a member of the first Quorum of Seventies and sustain all that has occurred on this sacred occasion. Sister Worthlet and I are thankful to be here at home with you again and tell you how wonderfully the Lord is blessing the work in the Europe area. Three new stakes have been organized in Germany during the past two weeks. It is also our pleasure to report that in the German Federal Republic, where we live, and in most of Europe, America's bicentennial has not gone unnoticed. Many occasions have arisen in which respect and love have been shown to our great country, and the precious principles of freedom and dignity which we accord the individual have been honored. The sentiment of these nations may be portrayed in the words of one distinguished ambassador general as he left our shores after serving his government here for nearly a score of years, he said, I admire and love America. What I have to say in parting is both a tribute and a warning. Never forget, Americans, that yours is a spiritual country. Yes, I know that you are a practical people. Like others, I have marveled at your factories, your skyscrapers, and your arsenals. But underlying everything else is the fact that America began as a God-loving, God-fearing, God-worshipping people, knowing that there is a spark of the divine in each of us. It is this respect for the dignity of the human spirit which makes America invincible. And this, too, is my tribute to America. We all know that material and physical things are not the source and substance of safety. Strength and freedom of our beloved country. In August, our divinely inspired prophet, President Spencer W. Kimball, and several of our general authorities held five area conferences in Europe. And what stirring, inspiring, testimony-generating experiences they were for all of us. Those attending will never forget how magnificently they were uplifted and spiritually fed and how wonderfully their testimonies were fortified. In Amsterdam, during the several days we were together, we visited with some of our members, and our conversation turned to one thing that is unique about the country, the dikes. Much of the Netherlands lies considerably below sea level, as you well know. Through the process of building dikes to wall out the salty sea and through pumping the water into canals, the country of the ingenious, resourceful, and doughty Dutch has literally been born of the sea. The process of wrestling, of wrestling the good and precious earth from the bitter ocean waters has been going on for over 700 years, and there is no abatement of the struggle in sight. The gigantic dikes, or seawalls, may rise as high as 60 feet and are often broad enough on the top for a road over which a regular flow of traffic may be driven. The other side of the dike usually slopes down to green meadows. Thus, those on the dike can see down the chimneys of the houses nestling below.
The fish on the one side are higher than the birds in the trees on the other. Then our discussion turned to the question of safety, and it was agreed that there are no dikes tall enough, wide enough, deep enough, or strong enough to give man the security for which his soul cries out, for which he instinctively yearns, and for which he often frantically searches. At this point, what, I, what was said is best described in Time magazine of February 9, 1953. In these words, Last week, a mournful tolling of church bells and the scream of sirens awakened the Netherlanders at 4 a.m. It was already too late. Waves chewed like bulldozers at the historic dikes of Holland, breaking through in at least at 70 places to reclaim what centuries of Dutch ingenuity has taken from the sea. To the north, the flood crest went as high as 30 feet. In a matter of hours, roughly a sixth of the Netherlands, 13,000 square miles, an area where one million Dutchmen make their homes, was devastated. The desolation here and in nearby countries had taken a toll of over 1,500 known dead. During this very year in the Mountain West, in the Teton Valley, in the Big Thompson River Canyon, we have been shocked and saddened at the suddenness and unpredictability of tragedy and the realization that mortal life at best is surely a fragile and uncertain spark. The globe is constantly threatened by forces, both man-made and inherent in our dwelling places, so devastating and capricious as to stun and stagger us. And when I speak of forces, I mean the innumerable threats to life of every type and kind that abound on the earth, in the earth, and around the earth, whether it be here in the Netherlands or elsewhere in the broad universe. Bookstore operators tell us that books which head the best seller, seller list are books on peace and happiness. And since we, as a church, have the sure answer to mankind's emotional and psychological problems in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is most urgent that we continue to lengthen our stride to reach forlorn, lonely, hungry, and thirsty hearts and those who quest as for the truth. Perhaps I can best emphasize what I feel by recounting the story of a young man by the name of Jack Robertson, an American paralyzed from the waist down, the result of an automobile accident seven years before. He had been a teacher at an elementary school in Scottsdale, Arizona. He had developed a burning desire to swim the English Channel and had trained for two long, grueling years, swimming great distances every day under all kinds of weather conditions in order to build up his strength and endurance. He was the first paraplegic ever to attempt the 21-mile swim across the Channel. The strong, treacherous currents, however, require the swimmer to cover a far greater distance than in order to reach the opposite shore. The day finally came when he was to make his heroic attempt. Wearing a wetsuit, flippers, and snorkel, he was carried to the beach at Dover by his cousins, Tom and Don Philibaum, where he crawled into the sea. Tom and Don and the boat that accompanied him fed him every hour. Jack had hoped to reach the French coast in 15 hours. For 12 hours, the swim went well, he said. 
Then I found myself swimming against the tide. The coast was clear, but conditions had decidedly changed. I gave it all I had, he declared. Tom was urging me from the boat, saying, You've got to do it. We were so close to France, and yet so far. It was the last few miles that completely drained me. The tides defeated me, the swimmer exclaimed. His strength ebbed away as he tried to cope with the formidable obstacles in his path. Life was made for struggle and exaltation, success, and victory were never meant to be cheap or to come easily. The tides of life often challenge us to understand why it has to be this way. We should maintain our understanding, our faith, and our courage by constant rereading of 2 Nephi chapter 2 the substance of which is set forth in this excerpt. For it must be, for it must be needs that all, that, that all there is in opposition in all things. Now let me make a suggestion that will enable us to maintain our spiritual strength and to keep our testimonies vitally alive so that the trials, the storms, and the tides of life will not defeat us. This suggestion is that, above all, that we should heed the words of Jesus to the woman of Jacob's well in Samaria when he said, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. How could one's strength ever falter? when it may be so dependably and continuously nourished and restored. Here it is made clear that life, at its best and most vigorous, is spiritual, and as such is the sincere expression of the soul to God. The spiritual self of each of us is that part of us that will never grow old or ill or die, but it must be nurtured and invigorated. Drinking of the living water is the unique recipe the only way. My testimony is that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ who stands at the head of our Church, and that President Spencer W. Kimball is our prophet, seer, and revelator who is guiding the destiny of the true Church of our Savior. To this I testify with all the strength I possess. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I, too, would like to add my confirmation that this is an historic occasion and, as a member of the First Quorum of Seventy, give support to the First Council, to the Quorum of the Twelve, and for any assignment that they might ask us to do. The message I am sharing with you today is that the gospel protects us and that the gospel principle of repentance has the ability to restore us if we have committed a sin. Recently, I received a letter from a young lady who went on a long, dark journey, a journey that ultimately led her into moral transgression. Her story is important because she's going through the anguish of full repentance and now is beginning to feel the joy that honest repentance can bring. She has asked that her personal experience be shared with you and a hope that there might be one who can be helped and might not take that same journey. She writes as follows.
It began when I left home to go to college, until that time under the righteous guardianship of my parents. I had not indulged in the loose morals of my friends and acquaintances. Probably the first dent in the armor of faith which my parents had built up around me was the realization that some good return missionaries were not always so good and really did indulge in necking and petting episodes. I began to think that a certain amount of physical relations were natural and included in the closer relationships I had with young men. Satan is insidious. He leads a person from a righteous way of living and little by little tempts them into greater and greater wrongs. The months passed and I fell further and further from the truth. I moved in with a friend who was inactive in the Church, who had loose morals, who drank and smoked. And with her, I visited bars and nightclubs I never would have gone into under my own initiative. Next, I stopped attending Church meetings, even stopped praying. I found my whole life had changed. I was always depressed. My grades dropped to an all-time low. I couldn't get along with my roommates. Everything, everything was wrong. I found myself totally rejecting the Church and all its teachings. I knew in the depths of my soul that I was afraid. I was truly a ship without a rudder. I found myself searching everywhere for some semblance of security, stability. My parents, who were physically a long way away, sensed some of my inner conflict and were worried. I finally met a young man, also inactive, whom I thought I was in love with. By then it was easy for me to convince myself that making love was all right, as long as I truly felt that I loved a man. So I made love and desecrated the temple of my body. I became pregnant, and when I realized my condition, I went to the young man and told him of my problem. He wanted nothing to do with me or my baby. He did say he'd pay for an abortion, however, if I so desired. At first, I rejected the idea of abortion, but as I thought about it, I began to rationalize. It took me a couple of weeks to talk myself into making an appointment and having the abortion done. Shortly thereafter, I had the good fortune to meet and marry a young man, extremely high caliber, not active in the Church, but he was and is a morally fine, upstanding young man. Ever since that time, I've been working and living towards the goal of becoming active in the Church and once again attaining the position of righteousness in our Father in Heaven's kingdom. A few months ago, I realized I must go to the bishop of my ward and confess the terrible things I had done. I did so knowing that my sins were grievous before the Lord, that I faced possible disfellowshipment or even excommunication. I also knew the time had come to put myself and my life into the Lord's hands, that I might be able to cleanse my sins and stand spotless before Him on the Judgment Day. I made an appointment one Sunday afternoon with the bishop. He took time out of his busy schedule to hear of my terrible transgressions. Oh, how I prayed to my Heavenly Father before that interview. The bishop was kindly. He asked that I have courage to tell him everything, that I would not hold anything back. As I tried to touch lightly on my transgressions, I couldn't. A horrible tightening in my throat and chest made it impossible for me to go on. I suddenly knew it was the answer to my prayers 
the spirit of our Father in heaven was with me, demanding complete confession. I bear witness that I felt the spirit constraining me to tell the whole truth. It isn't easy to admit one's past sins, even to ourselves. I found that it was as hard for me to admit the exact nature of my sins to myself as it was to admit them to the bishop. I didn't want to think about them. After my confession, the bishop commended me on taking the first step towards returning to my Heavenly Father and outlined additional steps to prepare me for the day when I would realize that I had truly been forgiven. He emphasized that he himself could not forgive me. That was the Lord's decision. He helped me to understand that I could be forgiven, that my Heavenly Father loves me, that I could gain an awareness of my future goals and not constantly condemn myself all my life, thus halting my eternal progression. He asked me to read The Miracle of Forgiveness by President Spencer W. Kimball. A great deal in making me aware of the process of forgiveness was obtained from that book. We had several appointments, the bishop and I, so that we could help find my course towards reestablishing myself in good standing in the Church. Following my interview, I found myself alternating between depression, which I wondered if I'd ever be forgiven, being lax in doing the things I was doing. I had learned that to change isn't easy. It takes time, and one must learn to try and try again. Now I find myself growing ever closer to the Lord, more positive. I know if I continue to work and to grow, my Father in Heaven will forgive me. But most importantly, I will also forgive myself. The important thing that we must understand, brothers and sisters, is that this young lady, as she says, if my experiences sound familiar, I beg you from the very depths of my heart, please, please take stock of your life. Do not be misled by the superficial moral codes of our day. They are Satan's most persuasive tools. They have no eternal significance. It is Satan who will entice us away from the joyous richness awaiting us in the eternal family circle. Oh, my brothers and sisters, you are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Stay true to your birthright. Do not bring into your lives the miseries and anguish of the soul that I brought into mine. Refrain from doing things that will make you eternally sorry. Prepare yourselves in righteousness to do the things that will make you eternally happy. The true story we have shared is a testimony once again by a young lady who is coming back from the depths of depression to make a new life for herself. My brothers and sisters, there is no canyon deep enough, no canyon or cavern dark enough, President Kimball has told us, to hide from ourselves if we take the long, dark journey. The gospel can protect us from taking those journeys, no matter how long or dark they might be, and through the gospel principle of repentance can restore us even as now you may be at that dark journey's bitter end. The steps of repentance have been clearly defined for us. First, recognize we've done wrong. Second, covenant with the Lord that we will never repeat the sin we've committed and are repenting of. By this ye may know that if a man repenteth of his sins, behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Third, recommit ourselves to living a better life in all phases of the gospel. 
forth. Make restitution for the wrongs we have committed by repenting in prayer to the Lord, confessing to our bishop, who is an ordained common judge in Israel and the presiding high priest. Apologize to those whom we have offended. Fifth, the depth of our repentance must be as deep as the sin we have committed. There is no easy way. It hurts, but it cleanses. Sixth, time is the next element of repentance and restitution, time to prove to ourselves, to our Lord, to our fellow men, that we have committed ourselves to a new way of life, time to study the scriptures and dedicate our life to the commandments we learn we must live to be happy and have joy. Seven, complete forgiveness of ourselves, forgiveness without any feelings of retribution for those who have offended us. Eighth and finally, the greatest of all blessings, the forgiveness from the Lord. We no longer look back with depression and hurt, but forward to the future with hope and joy and love for God, self, and all mankind. Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. But learn that he that doeth the works of righteousness shall receive his reward, even peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. I give you my testimony that I know that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, our Redeemer. I testify that they love us and help give us the gospel to protect us from taking life's long, dark journeys. I further testify that whether you be a member or a non-member, that this principle of the gospel of repentance has the power to bring us back from the depths of despair, to give us peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come, no matter how long or dark our journeys may have been. These principles apply to all of us. I ask the Lord's blessings to be with all those who are reaching out, to know that they may come back. May our Heavenly Father bless us to dedicate our lives. There is no better time to start than today. That we may remain valiant all the days of our lives and endure to the end is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I am grateful to the Brethren of the First Presidency for the call extended me to serve in the First Council. I pledge my best efforts to fulfill this call honorably. Our beloved President formerly supervised South America. As I have traveled in this area, scores of members have asked me to express their love to you, President Kimball, and I am happy to bring you their saludos y gran amor. In these lands, there are hundreds of young men striving to fulfill President Kimball's request to serve full-time missions. Meager funds, scarce resources, hard life, and devastating inflation make this extremely difficult. Jobs are available, but pay is low. Where a young man has no family resources on which to draw, it would require many years to earn sufficient to finance himself completely. Other difficulties compound the challenge. Some young men are a financial support to their family. Merely losing a breadwinner in order to fill a mission constitutes a tremendous sacrifice on the part of the whole family. Sometimes the young person is the only church member and lacks parental support. Of course, some families can and do support their sons. 
Remember, however, that the Church is new in these lands. In five of the eight missions where I serve, the Church is less than twelve years old. In the other three, it is less than twenty, with the major growth occurring recently. Indeed, the Church is new to all families who have recently joined. They have not yet developed Latter-day Saint traditions. They have not had years to look forward to and prepare for missions. In future years, we can and will become better prepared, and yet it is Church policy not to call anyone to serve a mission who has not made substantial personal and family sacrifice. We have literally hundreds of young men who, through great sacrifice, can procure only part of the funds necessary to finance their missions. Still, these fine young people present themselves to their leaders with a seriousness of purpose. They are ready to serve with deep spirituality and testimony, ready with their native language, a greater blessing than most of you can appreciate, ready with everything we require except sufficient money. In the Church, we do not send bills. There are times, however, when it would be appropriate to make known a special need. You no doubt would want to know, therefore, that the First Presidency has established a Church missionary fund. Presently, it is being methodically depleted. Since we do not normally appeal for money over the pulpit, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> now that I have so carefully avoided asking for funds, you should nevertheless be advised that if you were to put something in the mail for the missionary fund, it certainly would not be refused. <laughs> Let me tell you of some young people I know who have tried to provide for their missions, to whom you might provide additional help. A mother approached the mission president with this plea. Could I get my son on a mission somehow? He's my only hope. Unfortunately, his father is unable to provide well for the family. We have eight children. Our income is very meager. We eat only two meals a day. But this is a good boy. He wants to serve a mission. If we are very, very careful, we can provide a few pesos per month. Isn't there some way he could serve a mission? Another man lived, young man lived on the outskirts of a large metropolitan area. There were no lights or water in the thin-walled, modest structure that served both as a home and a small shop. After his family's conversion, he attended seminary and developed an insatiable desire to learn. With great effort, he entered the university, working part-time to buy books as well as to help support the family. When the desire to go on a mission became overwhelming, he had to double his efforts to save money for his mission. So he carried his books under one arm and his bag of wash rags, wax, and sponges in the other. Between classes, he would go out and wash cars, then return for another class. The Lord blessed him with work. He multiplied his income until his leaders felt he had made the necessary sacrifice to help sustain himself. There are scores of others, each one a lesson to all in the principle of obedience and sacrifice. 
A young lady with a great desire to fill a mission was counseled to buy ingredients, make cookies, and sell them at school during lunchtime. She did so. Then she bought more flour, baked more cookies, and continued this process for weeks, making a small amount of money each day to help toward her mission. Are there not thousands of you listening today who are ready to match these two precious years of a young man's life with sufficient additional funds from your abundance so that he can have the privilege of service? In this way, could you not become nursing fathers and mothers to these children of promise? I call this matter to your attention for two reasons. First, time is of the essence. We need to get moving with the things of real import. The world must hear the gospel. Paul asks, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And I ask, How shall they be sent today without sufficient means? The second reason is the Lord counsels rather specifically about the wise use of property. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Jacob counsels, Think of your brethren like unto yourselves, and be familiar with all, and free with your substance, that they may be rich like unto you. But before you seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God. And after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches to clothe the naked and to feed the hungry and to liberate the captive and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. How blessed we would be if we could pattern our conduct after the Nephites described by Alma. And thus in their prosperous circumstances they did not send any away who were naked or that were hungry or that were athirst or that were sick or that had not been nourished, and they did not set their hearts upon riches. Therefore they were liberal to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, whether out or whether in the Church. In our day the Lord has warned us sternly, And again I command thee that thou shalt not covet thine own property, but impart it freely. My brethren, we have been too casual about these matters in the past. There is work to do. We need your help to do it. The word is urgency, and the time is now. Many of you have the power to open doors of opportunity for the service of others. May you see this as an opportunity to wisely use the means which the Lord has given you to help his work and to save your souls. I know many of you already contribute. I know the Lord will keep his promises to you if you will keep your promises to serve. I testify that God lives. Jesus is the Christ. This is his church. This is his earth and all things in it. We are but stewards over his goods. May we delight to share them, and may we realize the promise that he who doeth the works of righteousness shall receive his reward, even peace in this world, 
and eternal life in the world to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.